Let's open in prayer. Uh, We're glad you're here this morning. Let's pray as we enter into a time of studying the scriptures together. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the chance to be together, for uh, the opportunity to live life in relationship with other followers of you. We're grateful, and we pray that you would speak to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, as Dan mentioned, um, my, my plane landed Friday evening after um, a unexpected nine hours in Buenos Aires where uh, I had a layover and the plane was delayed. And so um, I was later getting back than I'd expected. And so I stand before you today with a tired body, but a full heart. I'm absolutely um, honored to have had the chance to pour into um, 40 or 50 missionaries and pastors from all around Latin America who are on the front lines, who have sacrificed much for the gospel, and who are seeing Jesus do excellent and beautiful things all around the globe. I was reminded of um, when I was meeting there, we, we had the, the very first day we got there, um, the Paraguayans threw this feast for us. There's this battle going on in um, South America between Brazil, Argentina, and Paraguay uh, about, about who has the best meat and the best barbecue. And so We invited them to duke it out, right? I mean, please, bring your best to the table. And so the Paraguayans did, and um, we had this this just feast, and I'm sitting around the table with people from a number of different countries, from um, anywhere ranging from Korea to um, Great Britain to all around Latin America, and we had this great conversation, great food, and um, the Paraguayans brought in this harpist. The, the harp is the national instrument of Paraguay. And so they brought in this masterful harpist that just melted our faces with the harp. It was, it was amazing. I didn't even know that was possible, but it is. <laughs> then they brought out this woman that was dancing with a jar or glass jar on her head. I mean, I mean and they brought out all this sort of cultural stops for uh, Paraguayans. And I'm thinking to myself, like, if this happened in Colorado, like, where would we take them culturally? What would we show them? I mean, like, go barbecue hot dogs and take them to strip malls, right? Like, that's, that's our contribution to world culture. But so I'm sitting there, and I was reminded once again that people that live in the States are the only people that only speak one language. Like, everybody around this table spoke more than one language except me. I'm like, I'm the local moron here, right? We are the local morons, all of us. I mean, and so I'm sitting around this table, and um, I got to know the Paraguayan culture over the course of a week, and, and I love Latin culture. I love, I love the passion that they live with. I love the, rela- the relationships are important. I love that, that food is essential and good food is important. There was one thing I wasn't expecting, though, that I found out about Paraguayans. They drink this tea that they call tarare. Will you say that with me? Tarare, yeah. It's um, mate in um, Argentina and a number of other countries in South America, but they call it tarare, and it's this loose-leaf tea that they pack into a cup, and then they have this straw that sifts out all of the tea and um, that people drink, and it's primarily men that drink this tarare tea, and they don't just drink it in the morning, and they don't just drink it in the evening. I mean, they drink it all throughout the day. And it's serious business. Like most men you'd see walking around the downtown area had a thermos with them and their little tetere cup that was attached to the side of it to the glory of God. (laughs) 
And I mean, so I'm teaching, and the, you could tell the Paraguayans because they had their terre the entire time, and they're like taking drinks of it and passing it around. I mean, I felt like we were at a college party or something. I mean, it looked like, I'm like, what are these guys doing, right? And it was this distinctive of Paraguay. And I started to think about what are the, what are the distinctives of us, not as, not as citizens of the U.S., but as citizens of the kingdom. Like, what's our, what's our today? I come back with a, with a full heart. I come back reminded that our God is a multicultural God and that our faith is a multicultural faith. I come back reminded that what God is doing is far bigger than what God is doing at South Fellowship or in Centennial or in Littleton or in Colorado, but that what God is doing, he is doing on a global scale. And I come back reminded of the reality that Jesus promised he will build his church and he is building his church, not only here, but in South America and around the globe. And it is an absolute joy to be a part of that. I have a full heart. And I was reminded of the terere because I think it's sort of what Paul's talking about this morning. Will you open to Philippians chapter 1 with me? Verse 27 as we continue our study through the book of Philippians. This is Paul's letter to the church at Philippi that he wrote somewhere between 60 and 62 AD from a, a prison cell in Rome, we think, and it's to a church that he planted and a church that he loved dearly. And listen to the way he begins this section of scripture after, after declaring that whether he lives or whether he dies, that Christ is his all. So the implications of that are what follow. And here's what he says. He says this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So here's what Paul says. He uses this word only. Um, it's this emphatic, like, look up at me, Okay. And he wants to tell the Philippian church, if you only get one thing, if in this letter, in this long, not, not long letter, but this letter that I'm sending, if you only hear one thing, hear this. And Gordon Fee, the great commentator on the book of Philippians, would say that this section of scripture, section, uh, chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, is the crux of the entire book. And Paul's invitation is this. Let your manner of life be worthy or consistent with the good news that Jesus is king above all, that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. See, here's what Paul would say to you and to me today. He would say that the announcement that Jesus is king changes everything about the way that we live. See, what he would say is, let your manner of life, not just, not just one part of your life, but your entire life must be shaped and informed and driven by the fact that you, yes, you, are people who are caught up in, enveloped by, and shaped by the good news that Jesus rules and reigns over all creation. See, he would say to us today, the gospel is not something that you can add to your already nice existence. The gospel is something that changes everything. And he uses this word. 
This word that is translated in your English Bible, if you have an ESV translation, um, manner of life, let your manner of life, it comes from one Greek word, and the Greek word is polytousesthe. Can you say that with me? Good you tried. Good job. Polytusis. Here's the, here's the secret, the seminarian secret. Okay? If you don't know how to pronounce it, you say it confidently and you say it fast. Okay? Polytusis they. And here's what it, if it's really two words put together. The first word would be poly or, or polis, where we get our Indianapolis. It means city. We also get our word, any guesses? Politics. Right. And what Paul is saying is, let your public life, let the life that you live in front of everybody, your your political life, if you will, let your public life be shaped and informed by the fact that the good news of Jesus is true and that he reigns above it all. See, some translations, I think, maybe say it a little bit better. They, they would say, only let your manner of life be reflective of your citizenship of the king. That everything about us is shaped by the fact that Jesus is king. Now, this word, polytusiste, this invitation to live as citizens of the gospel, for us, we go, well, that's great, that's wonderful, we, we would love to live as citizens of the gospel, and wouldn't that be wonderful? And we're 1,700 years entrenched in Christendom, but for an early follower of Jesus, you would have to understand that for them to live as a citizen of the gospel was a revolutionary idea. It wasn't some nice sort of Christian spiritual platitude that they would plaster to a mug and feel warm and fuzzy when they drink from it in the morning. It was something that changed the entire course of their life. See, because they lived in an empire. They lived in a Roman empire. And Rome had this phrase. They had this term. See if it sounds familiar. They they called it euangelion or good news. And for a Roman, what good news meant, and they would talk about good newsing a lot, what good news meant was that Rome reigned and Rome was supreme. They called it the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And it definitely looked like peace depending on which side of that sword you were on. And so they had this good news that Rome was conquering more and more of the globe. And so when Paul talks about the gospel or the euangelion of the kingdom, Oh, he is swimming against the stream of the empire. And when he talks about Jesus as Lord or Jesus as Savior, he is making a declaration not just about Jesus, but about Caesar and about the world in which they live. See, because in their time, Nero was the ruler of of Rome from 54 to 68 AD, right when Paul is writing this letter. And they had these coins that circulated around the Roman Empire. And the coins would have an emperor, the emperor's face on one side. And on the other side, it would have this Latin phrase, devious filius, which meant son of the divine or the divine son, because their conviction was that their emperor was the son of God. 
When followers of Jesus come proclaiming gospel, that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is Lord, they aren't giving each other a nice pep talk. They are starting a revolution. This is a huge, for Paul, this is a huge statement. If you don't believe me, listen to what they say about the believers in Acts chapter 17. See, Paul and Silas are preaching, and when they couldn't beat them up for what they were saying, they found their friend Jason. Listen to Acts chapter 17, verses 6 and 7. And when they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city's authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. So the question is, well, how are they acting against the decrees of Caesar? And what are they saying? They're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another, what? King. His name is Jesus. This is a revolutionary statement. Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the King. You know that's not his last name, right? Christ is not his last name. It's a title that he reigns and that he rules above it all. And so Paul's going, all right, Philippian church, I want you to live in a way that's consistent with your citizenship and your citizenship declares that Jesus rules and that Jesus reigns above it all. And so, followers of Jesus in Philippi, before you're a citizen of Philippi, you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And before you're a citizen of Rome, you're a citizen of the gospel of the king. And so, follower of Jesus, will you look up at me for just a second? I don't know what your passport says. Where it says your home is, I only know this, that if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, he is your highest allegiance. He reigns supreme. And sure, you have dual citizenship. You can be a citizen of the U.S. and you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven if you're a follower by faith of Jesus, the Messiah. But that followership, that citizenship trumps everything else about us. And see, here's the sort of big idea Paul wants us to get this morning. It's that the conduct of our lives has to, has to reflect our citizenship in the gospel. The conduct of our lives, the way that we live, has to be in shaped by and informed, shaped by and informed by the reality that Jesus reigns. Friends, the scriptures are really clear that you have been born again, you've been made new. And when that happened, you became a citizen of a different type of kingdom. Somebody say amen. Amen. And that's great news. And our conduct must always be a reflection of our allegiance. Our conduct must always be a reflection of our allegiance. And it is. It is. We always live out what we bow down to. We always act in a way that's consistent with what our heart is captured by. When an army takes instruction from its king, it's living out its allegiance. When we, as people who are in the West and in, in the United States of America, when we live in a way that reflects our culture, we're simply conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of our citizenship. 
So how does it look to do this with the gospel? What does it look like to be gospel citizens? Because, friends, the calling is to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, not sometimes. Look up at me for a second. Not sometimes. Not when life is easy and when life is great. We don't get that invitation as followers of Christ when things get really hard or when we get really disappointed or when, when, when we get wronged by somebody else or when life doesn't go the way that we want. We do not get the option to say, all right, I'm going to live in a manner worthy, not of the gospel, but of something else. Really, the manner worthy of Ryan. We don't get that option. And so what we're going to talk about today is so important because it's going to shape, it's intended to shape the way that we live. So here's what I want to ask. If our conduct must be a reflection of our citizenship of the gospel, what is that conduct intended to look like? And how do we become these types of citizens? I want to ask, what's the terere of the kingdom of God? What's the distinctive about us? that everybody would see and that everybody would know and they go, oh, they're God's people. They're God's citizens. That's how we know. Here's what Paul says, because he answers that question. If you're asking that question, great question. That's the right question. Here's what he says. There's three ways that you and I live as citizens of the kingdom. Only let your manner of life or let your citizenship be consistent with the fact that Jesus is king. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit. Okay, so here's what he said. Very first thing. It's this sort of militaristic type of language, but what Paul wants us to do is before we do anything, he wants us to become something. Before, before he's going to get into, here's, here's how you live and your conduct and what your actions need to look like, before he gets to any of that, what does he invite us to do? Stand. Stand in the Spirit. Stand in the presence of God. See, before you ever carry out the Father's plans, you need to hear the Father's heart. Let me say that again. Before we ever carry out the Father's plans... We need to hear the Father's heart. And so what Paul wants the Philippian church to do is to stand in the spirit, to hear the voice of God that speaks over them. And he would say, okay, here's the terere of the kingdom, the thing that's distinctive about us as followers of Christ. Above anything else is we are standing intentionally in the spirit of God. Did you know that this is a call all throughout the scriptures? That before we try to go anywhere or do anything, God wants us to become somebody. And so in the book of Ephesians, when Paul is talking about spiritual warfare, when he's talking about engaging with the enemy, listen to what he says. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to what? Stand, not fight, stand. Isn't that an ironic statement? Put on armor so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to 
withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. If you have your own Bible out and you go all the way into verse 14, the second word there is stand. Here's what Paul would say. You don't fight for victory. You fight from a place of victory. And the job of followers of Jesus is to stand in the gospel, to hear the voice of the Father over us that says, I love you and I'm good to you. When we were at Legoland, um, we went on this sort of log ride where you go down this like um, in a um, roller coaster, you're buckled in and you go down into the water and this just tidal wave splashes over you. Anybody been on one of those? Anybody been the moron that does that first thing when you get there in the morning? <laughs> awesome. So we're soaked the entire day. But we went down that. We went down that. And there were people standing on the bridge that get hit by that tidal wave of water. And what they're doing is when they see the water coming, they hold on to that rail as hard as they can. And they just brace themselves because they know that tidal wave is coming for them. I sort of picture that. That's the way we're called to stand in the gospel. It's not some sort of lackadaisical, well, I guess I could stand. It's the storms of life are raging. And if I don't hold on, and if I don't stand intentionally, and if I don't stand firm, the most natural thing is going to take me away from the grace of God, from the mercy of God, from the love of God, and it's going to send me off into nowhere. And so what Paul wants more than anything for citizens of the gospel is to stand in the gospel. And so I just wanted to really briefly, I'd love to dive into this more, but I just want to invite you to interact with what happens when we stand for a second. What do we hear when we stand in the spirit of God? Here's the first thing that we hear. The first thing that we hear is that we stand firmly planted in his grace. That's what we hear. The Spirit of God testifies to our hearts and our minds that through him we have obtained by faith, we have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. It's true of you, friend. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are not working for the acceptance of God. You are living from the acceptance of God because of the work of Jesus on the cross on your behalf. Do you know that? And when we don't stand by faith in the gospel, what we do is we try to work by effort in the flesh. And we try to obtain and we try to get, we try to get God to like us. We try to get God to be happy with us. We try to get God to be pleased with us. And what he says to us when we hear his voice, when we stand in the gospel is, I am pleased because of the work of Jesus. And your citizenship has to be shaped first by your standing in the grace of God Secondly, here's what we start to hear. I love as this passage in Romans chapter 5 continues. It says, and hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Did you know that while the Holy Spirit is intended and given, he is a guide, he's a teacher, he's a convictor of righteousness, but he is maybe more than anything else the affirmer of the affirmation 
affection of God for the people of God. One of the Holy Spirit's main roles in your life is to confirm the reality that an almighty, holy God loves you and is for you and died for you and his perfection rules over your life. So when we stand, we start to understand grace and we start to receive love. It's, it's that type of standing that can write songs like, the love of God is greater far. The author says, could I with ink the ocean fill? Were the whole sky of parchment made, where every blade of grass a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could a scroll contain the whole, though spread from sky to sky. And what the Holy Spirit says in the life of the believer, when we stand in the Spirit and hear the voice of God, is that affection is towards you. That's crazy. We also start to hear God's invitation to come, to learn from him, and to rest under his easy yoke. We stand in grace, we stand in love, we stand in the rest that comes from the finished work of our good Father. And friends, where we stand, listen to me on this, maybe even look up at me for a second, where we stand will eventually determine how we walk. Where we stand and what we hear from our Father or don't hear from our Father will determine the way that we live and the path that we walk. And so, Abraham Lincoln succinctly said, be sure to put your feet in the right place and then stand firm. The problem is a lot of times we have our feet in the wrong place. <laughs> the problem is even as, as church people, that's who you are this morning. We often have our feet planted in, I've got to try harder, I've got to do more. That's not gospel citizenship. That's religion. You're a citizen of religion but you're not a citizen of the good news that Jesus reigns. And that's Paul's invitation. That's the terere of the kingdom. So maybe if you're going, all right, Paul, so how do I stand? What does that look like? It's a great question. I'm going to give you two things that I would encourage. One, I would say if you're, if you're not spending at least 15 minutes a day in the scriptures, it's probably impossible to stand in the gospel. So that's just an invitation. Not, not a requirement, not a duty, but man, feed your soul with the scriptures and the food that's in here. It's beautiful. Second thing is we write devotions that go along with every single message we give now. And I would invite you to hop on our website, stylefellowship.org daily, and to check out those um, daily devotions, and maybe they'll be an encouragement to you, and, and hopefully they're intended that they would help you stand firm. So here's that. That's the first thing, gospel distinctive, gospel citizenship. We are people who stand in the spirit. Before we execute the Father's plans, we hear the Father's heart. Second thing, it says, so let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel 
so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, what? Striving. So immediately we're catapulted into this tension, right? Well, are we supposed to, as gospel citizens, are we supposed to stand confidently in the gospel or strive ferociously for the furtherance of the gospel? Which one is it? Yes. Yes, as followers of Jesus, we are called to both stand and to be shaped by the gospel and then from that to live it out. The gospel was not intended to just be theorized. It's intended to be actualized in our lives, in the everyday, in the way that we interact with our husband or our wife, boyfriend or a girlfriend, in the way that we interact with an employee, in the way that we love our neighbors, the gospel is intended to come out of every fiber of our being. And so Paul says we strive. It's in the Greek, it's this term, sunathleio, uh, which means where we get our word athletics. So he's going like, we're going for it. We are pushing forward the good news that Jesus is king. We're standing intentionally in the spirit and we're striving fearlessly for the gospel. And Paul's going to invite us to dwell on three things that come alongside of this striving or this desire to see God's kingdom come and his will be done. So maybe even before we go there, I just I feel compelled to ask you do, do you, do you have that desire? Is it within you? <laughs> To say, God, we want to see your kingdom come. We want to see your will be done. In our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in your world. He goes, if you do, if that's some of the, the gospel distinctive, the terere of the kingdom, if that's a distinctive of you as a follower of Christ, well then there's three things that he says we need to be about. First is that we strive not individually, so this pushes back against our American Western individualism, does it not? But we strive what? Side by side. See, we would love for a follower of Jesus' life to be defined by Jesus plus me, wouldn't we? The only problem with that is the Bible. And our lives are Jesus plus we not Jesus plus me. Here's a picture of what it might have looked like in Paul's day to strive side by side. He would have had a picture in his mind of a Roman army that on their own, a soldier would be absolutely decimated and taken down. But together, when they link shields, they can conquer anything in front of them. And that's what Paul has in mind when he talks about the church. When he talks about this called out colony of followers of Jesus striving together, it's not just each of us going our own way. It's us together saying, we believe that Jesus is worth it. Second thing he says is we strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, before you go, yeah, Paulson, that's obviously, right? That's what we've been talking about this whole time. What was interesting to me is that you cannot find anywhere in Paul's letters where he wants to strive against Rome. Now, the fascinating thing about that is that Rome is an absolute beast. 
a brutal beast. They are crucifying thousands of people a day who are followers of Jesus. They're covering people in tar, putting them on poles, lighting them on fire to, to um, uh, lighten the Caesar's parties at night. It is a brutal thing. You also don't see Paul saying, we want to strive against paganism that has all these practices of temple prostitution and debauchery and just crazy things going on. What you see Paul saying is, in the midst of a dark world, we aren't going to fight just the darkness. What we're going to do is we're going to shine a light on Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, from the very beginning, they were known not for what they were against, but they were known for what they were for. They are for Jesus. They are for a life of faith in him. They weren't against Rome. They weren't against a politician. They weren't against an issue that was going on. And there were a number of them they could have chosen, you guys. I mean, let's not be so naive as to think that the world and the situation we live in is so unique. It's not. It's not. So if I could, let me just push here for a second and say, I would love for us to lead a charge where we start to redeem the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. That instead of pointing out the darkness, we shine a light on the one who says I'm the light of the world. And instead of being known for the issues that we're against, that we're known for the name that we're for, and so one of the things I've been thinking about is, how do we know if this is happening? How do I know if this is happening? Well, maybe one of the ways I know if this is happening in my own heart is if I'm more passionate about an issue than I am about Jesus. Man, I, I don't know about you, but I want to get back to the place. I, I, I absolutely, my heart breaks that what the world thinks of the church first is a list of things that we're against rather than the Jesus that we're for. What does it look like, you guys, to be citizens of the kingdom where we say, no, our, our goal is to lift high the name of Jesus in the empire. We're gonna live different. We're gonna live as his citizens. And third, here's what it says. So we strive side by side for the faith, not frightened by anything in your opponents. So he's just going after it. We are living fearlessly. Now, why would Paul have to write this? Okay, because there's a lot of reason for them to fear. There's a lot of things to be scared about. Why does he write in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, why does he say God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control? Why? Because our natural tendency is to be carried away by the issues that we see and the problems that we have and the opposition that we face. But what God has placed inside of you, hear me, friends, what God has placed inside of you as a follower of Jesus is a ferocious, fearless, faithful passion to carry his name wherever you go, wherever you go. But we can only live fearlessly if we've stood in the gospel intentionally. I love the way that Alexander McLaren put it when he said this, the great Scottish preacher. He says, faith, which is trust, and fear are opposite poles. If a man or woman has the one, he can scarcely have the other in vigorous operation. 
He that has trust set upon God does not need to dread anything except the weakening or paralyzing of that trust. So he goes, this is, this is paramount. We've got we've to be devoted to Jesus in a way where, that his perfect love for us would cast out fear of everything around us. So, if you're like me, there's things in your life that are going on where you go, man, God, it'd be so easy to just give in to fear. And what Paul would say is your victory is certain as you live fearlessly in the gospel. So, what is it today that God might invite you to lay down? What, what fear are you holding? Is it fear of rejection? As you're a gospel citizen, sharing boldly the good news of the kingdom, what are the fears that come along with that for you? Is it, is it if you step out and have a conversation, you may not know what to say? Been there. Only every time I open my mouth to speak about Jesus. Is it that you'll be rejected? See, if, if we're gospel citizens, distinctly shaped and formed by the gospel, in a way that gets out of us. Friends, we are invited to strive fearlessly for the name of Jesus. Who are you praying for? Who are you going, God, would you capture their heart? Would you show them your beauty? Would you invite them into your kingdom? Would you use me? Because we're citizens of yours. We're captured by your grace. Finally, and we'll land the plane here quickly. The third and final distinctive of the terrare of the kingdom, if you will. For it has been granted to you. And that word granted is actually in the Greek. It's the same word where we get our English word grace. It's been graced to you. It's been gifted to you. And if you just stop there, you go, well, what's coming next? This has to be wonderful. It's been gifted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict you saw I had and now hear that I still have. I mean, can we be honest for a second? That's the gift that we hope comes with a gift receipt so that we can return it, right? That's the one that we're going to re-gift to somebody that we're not all that excited about, right? Here, I got this for you. It's the gift of suffering. You're welcome. Why in the world, why in the world would Paul call this a gift? Well, I'll give you three reasons that are embedded in this passage. I wish I had time to unpack them all. One, through suffering, we get to see the beauty of the gospel in a new and a fresh way. That's one of the reasons it's a gift. An eternal perspective is often only gained through broken temporal circumstances. It's true. Somebody say amen. It's true. It's true. Second is that when we suffer for Jesus, we enter into solidarity with Jesus. He is the slain, risen Messiah. He gave his life. And when his people walk a path of persecution that's difficult and hard, they meet him in a unique and real way. And third, as Paul suggests, they, they've seen his plight and, and that he had and that he now has. What they gain is a solidarity with 
Jesus in the midst, or with Jesus' people in the midst of suffering. It's the third kingdom distinctive, citizenship distinctive of you and I. What's our culture as followers of Christ? What do we carry with us everywhere we go? Well, we carry with us the fact that we're citizens of the gospel, which means that we stand in the spirit and we hear the voice of our father before we try to execute the plan of our father. That we are people who strive fearlessly. We're not agenda-oriented. Our one agenda is Jesus. And we want to be known for what we're for, not for what we are against. And we are people who have said, whatever it takes, we want his name to be made more famous. Uh, when I was traveling this last week, uh, I had the chance to read a book called The Insanity of God as I was going to um, Paraguay. You've maybe heard Rob Karch talk about this book. It's about the persecuted church, and in one section of this book, I just want to, I'm going to end, end with this story. The author, Nick Ripkin, writes about a man named Dimitri who became a follower of Jesus in um, the Soviet Union under the communist regime. And he started to teach his kids about Jesus, and slowly his teaching grew to where there were 150 people gathered in his home illegally under the communist government to hear about the good news of Jesus. And eventually he got thrown in prison. And in a prison that was uh, a thousand kilometers away from his home, he had two practices that he did every single day. One of them in prison was this man, Dimitri, would stand, he would put his hands in the air, he would face towards the east, and he would sing what he called his heart song to Jesus. It was a song of praise, it was a song of adoration, and it was a song of lifting high the name that is above all names. The other thing he would do is whenever he was allowed to go out into the courtyard and he would find little scraps of paper, on those scraps of paper, he would write down as many scripture passages as he could remember, and he would write down as many songs as he could remember from their singing, and then he would stick this little piece of paper to the pole that was next to his prison cell. He did this for 17 years. And finally, the guards, they pulled him out of his cell and they said, Dimitri, um, unless you recant, unless you tell us that you're not a worshiper or follower of Jesus anymore, we are going to kill you. And he said, that's fine. Because I cannot turn my back on my Savior. And the next day, after being in prison for 17 years, those Soviet guards, they drugged Dimitri out of his prison cell, and everybody had heard this happen the day before, and they would, had heard his public declaration that he was not going to turn back on his faith. And as they walked him in front of all these prison cells, what Dimitri saw, he says, absolutely shocked him, because every single prisoner, 1,500 prisoners in this dark, dungy Soviet prison, stood at attention at the side of their bed. And as he went in front of them, they raised their hands and they sang the song that he had sung for 17 years. And as he describes it, this angelic choir of criminals 
shined a light on the one name above all names. And the guards immediately took their hands off of him and said, who in the world are you? And he said, I am a child of the one true God. And a few days later, they let him go. <laughs> Friends, you're a child of the one true God. You're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And I pray for you and for me that we would stand in the spirit, that we would strive for the gospel, that we would say Jesus is worth it, and that whatever comes our way, we would say we are his citizens. Because friends, we're either in this together or we're in it not at all. Throughout the passage, these are plurals. You collectively are citizens of the kingdom. And we will never live as citizens of the gospel unless we're part of a colony of the kingdom. But praise the Lord, you are. You are. Let's live in a way that reflects our citizenship. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Would you pray with me? Hey, after, um, after I close, uh, I'm going to play that a song that was written out of the Dimitri's story. So if you have a chance and you want to stick around, it's a few minutes long, but I think it'll be a blessing to you. So Jesus, this morning, we declare back to you that we long to live as citizens of your kingdom, to taste your goodness, and then to live in a way that reflects it. So Lord, help us stand confidently in the gospel. Help us strive boldly and fearlessly for the faith of the gospel and for the furtherance of the gospel. And Lord, whatever comes our way because of that, Lord, we want to say we're, we're with you. Wherever you lead, we want to follow. And Lord, we think today of our brothers and sisters around the world who have made that claim and who have given their life because they meant it. And so we, we enter into solidarity with them today. As they lift high your name, may we not give up in freedom what they refuse to give up in persecution. For the glory of your name we pray. Amen.